Welcome to the Nordic Mythology Podcast. I'm Daniel Farrand, owner of the company Horns of Odin, and I'm joined in person for the first time ever by Matthias Nordvig. Hello. Dr. Matthias Nordvig, sorry, oh, I did you a disservice. Yes, yes, you've got to get the title in there. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Nordic Mythology Podcast here live at the Midgardsblot. We are in Midgard Centered, and we are going to start off with a nice little panel talk with some of the guests who have been giving talks here in uh, the Mimia Talks. We have uh, Dr. Frederick Gregorius here, uh, Dr. Sophia van Herpen, and Tim Tailsman, and uh, PhD candidate uh, Jim Glassett as well. So welcome. And... Uh, we are going to be talking about uh, constructing the Viking Age between academia and uh, popular culture. So um, I hope you guys have some awesome things to say. Do we have no a pressure. microphone um, that we can uh, circulate? Um, I want to uh, start out by um, asking you guys, um, academics uh, in particular, um, how are we as academics constructing the Viking Age? I think we are often presenting our knowledge as something that is more or less finite or at least has something uh, uh, very concrete to say about the Viking Age. But I also know that most of us as scholars are painfully aware of the fact that, well, that's not really the case. So... um uh, maybe, Sophia, do you have something you would want to weigh in on with that? <laughs> Is this working? It sounds like it. Okay. Um, that was actually a question um, that was asked to me uh, when I gave my talk. Um, I think it's we are always talking about our interpretation of... Um, what we study. I mean, I study texts, so that is already an interpretation of uh, how it how it was, uh, how the Viking Age was, um, and I'm giving my interpretation of that. So it's an interpretation of an interpretation, um, and usually um, I give my opinion to. A room of academics so this was the first time that I gave it to a, a larger uh, public which was interesting um, in what way was that interesting what 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 differences do you see in terms of like questions and reactions to what you're doing um, I think in academia it's more about um, well we treat sources and it's uh, We, we often get <laughs> reactions on, well, it's, it's just a literary text, so you should be aware of that, and it's not his, historical, or you should link it to um, archaeological finds. Um, and here, uh, people are just more interested in, in how you see it. Um, mm. They want to learn more. So, so essentially, what... what, what what we experience as scholars having, you know, our little ivory tower debates about uh, these texts and how we can use them as sources to the Viking Age, we quickly, I guess, maybe run into a consensus where, uh, you know, we, 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 ag we agree on all these uh, different factors that, you know, 
that we have to take into account. We don't necessarily have to explicate them, but then what we see from the public is is more of a well. I want to access the 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 information that you have in particular and how you interpret it. Uh, sometimes in academia we get a bit lost in the discussion between fact and fiction, um, and here it was. You know, we want to learn more about what you know about these people uh, this time, um, how you see it. Um, so that was an interesting experience, I think. Uh, yeah, for me, yeah, that's great. My my question is to, I guess, to all the academics is, how conscious is it that you have to take a step back sometimes and look at it from and step back from like just the academic view and look, try and look at it from different angles maybe like the layperson or and how much can you trust the academics have gone before because i imagine everything is kind of built on the people before you and who's come before you and their work and their studies and how you can always trust that and do you always try to go back to the original material or as far back as you can where you can i guess that's for Matthias, for you sophie for you as well frederick okay um, so, sorry <laughs> i'm a bit confused here uh, is this no? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, um, how conscious academics are? Yeah, to kind of step out of their academic world because it feels like it gets sometimes gets incestuous. Sometimes that's what it is. Yeah, yeah, I don't want to be. I don't want to be offensive either. Circle jerks. I guess. Um, yeah, it feels like sometimes academics can kind of sh- shut off, maybe, and, and dismiss. Not all academics, but some certainly kind of dismiss other avenues um, and don't always yeah. talk to each other as well in different fields. Mm-hmm. You kind of, as I mean you personally, but academics are <laughs> sometimes, <laughs> you know, you'll, you'll have your area and then yeah. you'll kind of <clears throat> stick with that and prep. Well, you you know, in most cases you've spent decades studying it mm-hmm. and you kind of get very precious about it. And then maybe I wish everybody spoke a little more, I guess. Mm-hmm. We mentioned that on the podcast a few times. Well, yeah, I, I, I guess, you know, uh, the subject that you're hinting at is like how much do individual academics rely on a particular academic tradition that they belong to mm-hmm. and how comfortable are they, you know, expanding from there? I'm not here just to offend the academics. <laughs> no. <laughs> I just get away with it because I smile. <laughs> I'm not that offended. I mean, because I, I, I tend to study the reception of Old North religion. I also, of course, study the reception academically of Old North religion. And it is a very good subject where there's actually been a lot of trends. You do see, like, in a certain degree, we just look at the early, early 2000s when basically... There was a previous project called Roads to Midgard, which was in Sweden, which was a big project that dealt with new interpretations of old Norse religion. But it was also very clear that it was ideologically based. It was a lot of deconstruction because the big trend was we we're going to go against Dumasil and the kind of theories of Indo-European heritage and that stuff because they were considered to be racist and uh, there was a, a scholar called Bruce Lincoln. I think it's still his name, of course, because he's still alive. That became very, very influential in this kind of reception of old Norse religion. The, the big thing was to deconstruct it. It was everything was local. We couldn't know anything. Uh, the Icelandic texts were just Christian propaganda and so forth. Mm. It wasn't necessarily based on any real academic, uh, you know, empirical reasoning. It was more based on an ideolo- ideological understanding. And I think that's a big problem sometimes, particularly when it comes to like old Norse religion, old Nordic religion, that is very rarely neutral. It's always based on an ideological 
uh, understanding. And it's not only because it's a lot of academics, at, at least in Sweden, I've got this experience that there, there is a tendency, and I'm, I'm not going to try to be rude to my many times very great Swedish scholars here, but... You tell me what you want to say and I'll be rude. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can live. But there is no doubt that there is, sometimes you do have a tendency to interpret findings and in text in a way that seems to fit a particular narrative that is more suitable. It, it's nicer, for example. Mm-hmm. For, for a while, uh, there was this, the, you know, for example, did the Vikings have close connections to Islam? Is an uh, example. You know, th- there was a uh, uh, fabric that was interpreted people made a big fuss about it that oh this should be an example of you know that vikings you know, a burial of a woman that she was you know probably a shia muslim basically mm-hmm. uh, it didn't it makes it didn't make sense islamic scholars said that there's no way that this could be that case because this this particular pattern was much later and so there was a lot of but it was very clear that it was in the same way that earlier studies of old Norse religion were based on a kind of they wanted to present, you know, a glorious past or anything like that. And I think that's the main challenge in academia. It is always based on preconceived theoretical and ideological notions. And I don't think it's ever possible to get away from that. I think we always have preconceived notions. Mm-hmm. We never uh, sort of address a subject completely neutral. But I think that's something that academics should be aware of, including myself. I mean, I'm also, of course, based on a certain ideological framework that I work with consciously or unconsciously. But I think that's a big challenge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the other thing is how how accepting do you find it of changing? Because obviously, technology changes, ideas change. This this thing's ever growing. So it's like almost like an organic thing. It it's always changing as we discover more. Um, and I imagine that can be quite not damaging to the ego. But if you spend a decade on a certain idea and then something comes along and counteracts that. And no matter how much you think that was real for so long, or that was how things went, like, how does that feel? I guess that, that must, I don't know if any of you have ever experienced that personally, like you've, you've really studied something and then technology or something's discovered. And it's just like, shit, no, I, all uh, this is not what I thought it was. I, I think every scholar says that th- that's the dream. I think everyone actually experienced this as a nightmare mm-hmm. because I don't think anyone wants to have the theories disproven. No, no absolutely. But be. everyone wants to say that they want to have it disproven. In a sense, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's a very typical, I think like it, Richard Dawkins talks about it in one of his books that, you know, that this professor who, who suddenly realized that some of his uh, discoveries were completely wrong and he just like, accepted it and was so happy about it because, you know, science moves forward. But we do have egos. Many of us have of quite massive egos. I mean, and yeah, so yeah, so but I mean, giant head. If, if you've ever been in academia, I mean, acad- academics, particularly history, religion, can be like big babies. You know, people are you know sometimes it's been like physically fighting with each other oh, over yeah. things. Uh, yeah. yeah. So. <laughs> have you have you ever, Mateus, had anything you've done? Shit on. I mean, sometimes you like you, you'd accidentally criticize somebody's book, and then all of a oh, sudden, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I, wish, I would love I you had to pass the right now. <laughs> yeah, could you please pass the mic over here, and then then let's uh, focus a little bit more about uh, on on how how do we? Um, I want to ask the question essentially: How do we appropriately use? Um, academic knowledge academic texts uh in a way that it can be useful to the general public 
I think that's a good place to start. And I, I wonder which one of you three over here would like to. Yes, Jim. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, well, up for answering that. As, uh, I, my, my focus is on experimental archaeology. I'm, I'm figuring out how things were done and what that tells it. Yeah, what the techniques used in non-ferrous metal working. That's what I was talking about earlier. Uh, in the Viking Age, what that tells us about society. And one of the reasons why I'm doing that is because over the last 20 uh, odd years, I've been uh, demonstrating the, the, the kind of craft work. I've been uh, you know, in lots of situations, you know, in museums, uh, providing public interpretation of material culture, uh, you know, and, and providing that interface between you know, sort of the academia and general public. And you know, the public, you know, if, you know, families with kids ask the best questions. You know, what's that? Why is that? And it make, forces you to kind of question, you know, sort of the you know, the uh, the archaeological record yourself, and I'm very concerned with yeah, sort of, yeah, uh, material remains, interpreting those, yeah, helping to advance interpretation, and figuring out what that tells us, yeah, about Viking Age society, and then presenting that back to the public in museum situations, yeah, at reenactment events. I want, I personally, I, I hate the idea of the ivory tower. You know, knowledge shouldn't be constrained; it should be passed straight back to you know, the people who, who are interested, you know, and everybody loves the Viking Age. I presume everybody in this room loves the Viking Age. <laughs> like, you know, Absolutely. it's not just us. There's a lot of people out there. It's, you know, it's, it's this kind of great catch-all that brings people in. And I just want the information that goes before the public to be as well understood as possible. I mean, mm-hmm. yes, we can all argue about the minor, yeah, minor differences of interpretation and we all have our own specialities. I just want... Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Yeah, um, I guess to strip it back to its core, what is experimental archaeology? Experimental archaeology is uh, recreating um, past circumstances to understand processes. That's a uh, very processual archaeology way of uh, looking at it. Um, you know, and you know, you know, further theoretical developments in archaeology kind of allow for and constrain. You know, what you say you can do. You know. You know, um, uh, personally, I'm very into the idea of of reconstructing um, process to be able to observe that process. You know, yeah, there's a little bit of an argument in experimental archaeology about it uh, about reconstructing experience, and I really don't, you know, I don't want to follow some kind of phenomenological view that you can understand what people were thinking. They're completely different people. You know, yeah. People a thousand years ago didn't experience the world that you know, the, the way that we do. That's you know, we can say that for sure. But we can, I do think we can get a glimpse of their world by understanding how they did things. Mm-hmm. I think that's interesting because I think whilst we are different, I think we also are very similar. I think we sometimes forget that as well when we think of these people a thousand years ago. We almost forget that they humans they love they care they they feel all the emotions that we feel today but i think sometimes we remove ourselves from that and just think oh it's someone a thousand years ago they've got nothing in common with me and i think we really do you have when you you know when we've spoken about some of the the texts and the the rune sticks and and things found that you know they have things of like 
calling people each other dicks or like <laughs> being in love and all these like silly little things. Like, you know what? You're just a fucking human like I am. And you do graffiti well, the same as I do. And in a way, and, well, and in a way, I don't not, do graffiti, right? by the way. Yeah. I'll take that. I'll, I'll take that. But when it comes to, you know, I mean, something what I'm particularly concerned with is, you know, working of metals and, you know, transformation of you know, uh, materials from one form to another. Yeah, you know, I think, yeah, you know, I'm increasingly looking at that in a, yeah, from a point of view that um, they, they thought about it differently. You know, they they weren't they they were viewing the world through mm-hmm. yeah through the lens of their own culture. We, yeah, I can I can now tell you you know exactly what the, what you know, elements are in a, a, a in a metal alloy and its exact melting point. Mm-hmm. You know, um, yeah, thousand years ago, we wouldn't have that knowledge. They would understand it completely mm-hmm. differently, and they would understand yeah they would have a, a completely different conceptual construction. On how, yeah, how what they were doing worked, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and yeah, that can be seen through. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, if you go and look at the the twelfth century writer Theophilus, and uh, you know, and look at uh, some of the recipes that he used for uh, for metalworking, you have like kind of the most amazing kind of explanations for things which make absolutely no sense whatsoever. <laughs> you know, you can. Interpret processes that do make sense on, you know, on, from a scientific standpoint, and then he goes and throws something completely wacky into the mix. You know, you, you know and and he gets um, he gets a lot of criticism for you know recipes for how to make gold by first uh, by first breeding a basilisk. <laughs> I mean, that's what you do, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. But with careful use, his text can be made to it can, can be used to produce processes that do actually work. It doesn't matter how you get there. It's all about <laughs> yeah. getting there somehow. Um, no, I, I really like the idea of experimental archaeology. I think that we forget sometimes you just have to get your hands dirty and try and practice. And, you know, like we said earlier in, in your talk, you can look at what's in there. You can look at it in, in a lab as much as you want and strip it back to its parts and, and all that. But until you really try making it, you might just not see everything. You might, there's different angles, something might not work. And when you actually try to do it, you're probably going to come across problems, things that they may have solved. Um, it's fascinating. But how how accepted is experimental archaeology by academia? Because I feel like it could be one that's maybe poo-pooed a lot. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that really depends on who you ask, I think. Um, but I, I think you're an example of uh, it becoming more accepted. Um, now, you know, working with it in a, in a well, university uh, setting. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's uh, quite heavily used in lithic studies, you know, uh, you know understanding you know, con- uh, manufacturing use of stone tools. And, you know, that's where, you know, so you have some basic theoretical concepts have been developed that I'm, I'm pushing into slightly different, uh, realms and doing something a little bit more complex with that, uh, I'm hoping is going to stand up. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> but also it's all nervous. Yeah. And then, then you know, uh, I think we've seen it, uh, one of the earliest examples of, Experimental archaeology is, is actually with Viking shipbuilding, like reproducing yes. Viking ships with the original tools and and building methods and everything. That, that's that's relatively old uh, for uh, for for academia, I would say. Yeah, yeah. So, so that would probably be one of the examples of of, of early acceptance of, of experimental archaeology. But but otherwise, you know, there, there are definitely also those that are like, well, you 
you can't really say anything about this because you're just some dude trying it out. Like, so yeah, screw that. Well, that's what I, that's kind of what I wondered is if you don't have the, the right letters after your name, do they sometimes <laughs> just get ignored because it's, you know, maybe it just like, it's not thought of as proper science, I guess. I don't know. Well, I mean, so that, that's, that's actually one of the interesting things. And that's also perhaps a little bit of a question for you, Tim and Carol, because, um, what what uh, what 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 we should be asking in terms of like academic investigations of such things as as uh, producing ancient tools or 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 jewelry and, uh, and such um, and also uh, trying to uh, uh, reconstruct rituals or understand ritual processes in a in a in a pre-Christian prehistoric context right is what is a good method for approaching that <laughs> <laughs> look I, I would probably be excoriated if i said this in an academic context and at some point i probably will because i'm a bit of a cheeky bugger um <laughs> look, look I, I you touched on a point just before like that that repudiation from you know from academia from the more learned scholars that i think there is a perceived sort of elitism a pushback oh well you haven't spent you know six eight ten however many fucking years going through all of these archaic sources and, and like that that's crap like the people that lived in in you know our pre-christian germanic viking societies yes they had their learned scholars they had their pillars of wisdom but again like these are social hierarchies that exist today but you had people there, like you had a dude on a farm that, you know, I want to appease the gods. I don't want to have to journey three days by horseback past, you know, the erupting, you know, volatile volcano to get the the local, you know, Volvo or CRS to come out and bless my land. I'll go and do it myself. I may not have all of the right tools or the specialist knowledge, but there's an, in, I, I think, an inherent intention there on a very human level that I think we all still have to, I might not have the bona fides and the letters after my name, but like that doesn't preclude me from actually having a crack at it. And I, I think this is a really important thing and why I particularly love the idea of experimental archaeology. And I like to see it with, you know, with ritual practitioners, the stuff that, that Tim is doing as well with, you know, bardic interpretation, taking old things and using them in new ways. Or like play with it, explore it, experiment with it because you either learn or you understand more. And even if, everything you do is spent going no 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 that's not actually how it would have worked that still contributes to our overall understanding and i i think that's ultimately for everyone's benefit because we, we want to learn more about these things you usually learn more by fucking up well that, that's, that's it you know for, for every ivory tower academic that's oh you know i've spent five decades studying this i feel like we're just smashing academics here i do apologize no, no, <laughs> and it's, not to, it's not to discount the like the immense work they do like we do owe an enormous amount to you know these these individuals that sacrifice mm -hmm. their entire lives yeah going absolutely. down this road you know and we wouldn't do it if we weren't passionate about it but i think there comes a point where you know, the, the public particularly when it's like publicly funded I think there is a, a legitimate question there to say, well, what is the value of your research? What is your contribution to this age, this era, this present? Yeah, it's great to have history tours and all sorts of things, but you know, I think you need to be giving something more back to the public to help them understand what can we learn from these people to get things better, you know, learning from history's mistakes and all those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. I mean, some academics 
do, I guess. Mateus, you spend your time sat with me, yeah, uh, <laughs> teaching me every week. And obviously we have guests that come and join us and spend their time and teach us knowledge. So, you know, not everyone, I guess, wants to hold on to it like my precious. And <laughs> but some do. Well, but, you know, I think uh, it's it's less of, you know, knowledge hoarding and more of like, I dove into this rabbit hole and I'm never coming out. That's really yeah. what happened, right? And so you just got lost in the rabbit hole. I might just, well, it's just <laughs> like you do, you're patient with me. Like, you know, over, we've done this over a hundred and we're coming up to like 130 episodes. You know, you've been very patient. Whereas I think from, you know, you get people who studied a certain area for 20 years and then you get someone like me that knows nothing. And I'm just like, help me teach me about this or like what does this mean it's like i guess it's such a disconnect and such a difference of, of knowledge like how do you even start because every as we say through the podcast all the time it's complicated mm -hmm. and the the more you go down the rabbit hole of your specialist subject the deeper you get and the harder it is well the more complicated it is the more kind of like fuck none of this makes sense but it all makes sense so it's even harder i guess to try and then just yeah but, pass it on uh, I mean, I, I think what, what happens is essentially that um, in different ways, um, people who are at least interested in, in approaching each other are inching closer and closer together. And Midgotsport is an example of that as well, um, where, where you have, um, you have a, a, a public that's interested in heavy metal and think Vikings are cool and I want to have blood on my face and all that funky stuff. And then you have uh, academics as well who are who are interested in uh, and enjoy uh, interacting with those people with blood on their face, right? Mm -hmm. So in that sense, you, okay. yeah. <laughs> some of them might even be be people who also go and get blood on their face, you know. So so in that sense, you 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 do have a more of 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 a coming together in different ways, mm -hmm. and and that's actually. Um, I would say thanks to all the, the the stories and narratives that are out there um, and being uh, publicly disseminated through media in different ways about Vikings, about Nordic mythology. And this is the ball that I'm now kicking to Tim Talesman. And I'd like to ask you, um, what what is a good process for taking ancient tales and myths and then... Um, you know, making them relevant to an audience as you did the other day um, when you gave this uh, awesome uh, talk about Ragnarok and, and all the things. So take it away with it. Uh, well, it's, um, I have to go back to a couple of years where I met Einar from Madruna and he was doing a lecture about uh, musical instruments and at a certain time he told that it's very important to maintain and tell the old stories, but it was equally important to make new stories, and which I found very interesting. And now with the upcoming movies from Marvel and stuff, um, people are uh, taking the Thor they see in movies as the Thor we talk about the myths, and usually I start my stories well, you know, uh, I like this Marvel 4, Chris Hemsworth doing an awesome job, but uh, in my opinion, 
it's not a and so um, I usually tell, starting with my story, that I love Chris Hemsworth, um, but to me he's like a blonde pretty boy, and you know this is Thor, you know, he, with he the red beard, and <laughs> he's very know, pretty. And um, that's why with, with uh, making new stories, it's uh, like the, you you can turn the old stories into a modern way, uh, but that's why I'm making new stories, but because it's. Uh, um, working in a better way to place modern day myths uh, into today's stories because um, they are, you, you can make references like with Ragnarok for instance with what's going on today in the world you could say that some people like in Ukraine would say Ragnarok is happening at this moment because you know their whole world is being shredded and so yeah of course those old stories can be relevant uh, and but in my point of view it would be better to make new stories to make new uh, stories that everybody lives today uh, it's you get a better connection that's a that's a good point because i think we we also forget that the world was a lot smaller back then whereas when we speak today we say the world we we're a global society we know the world is the world Whereas back when you didn't have a phone, the internet, and you couldn't speak to people yeah. on the other side of the, the world, your world is maybe your village or the 10 exactly. miles around that. And if something happens to that, then that's... In, 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 uh, I'm sorry, I'm doing later this evening. Um, Balder returns to Midgard and he founds that, you know, as you can expand your mind, learning more, so too Emir's call has grown and found that Midgard is way bigger than it used to be. Mm-hmm. Oh, Cool. I like that. We've got it way bigger than it used to be. I guess it grows the more, the further they travel, the more they learn. Well, yeah. I mean, that, well, that I guess that says a lot about the myths because like Midgard is, uh, or, you know, the world in Nordic mythology is, is essentially a, a bunch of houses and a temple and a burial mound that, you know, was mentioned in stanza seven of Burial Spell. Mm-hmm. So that tells you a little about it. Their perspective back then, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I there's a, then there's a tree over here, and it's like, yeah, that, that looks like an Iron Age village right there. <laughs> One thing I I wanted to say earlier, um, I remember when we first started this this podcast. I had this very romanticized version of how academia worked, mm-hmm. and I like because I I don't come from that, you know. I I'm, I was a plumber for 13 years and fell into this somehow. Um, and I thought that like there was this big database of information and all academics spoke to each other and there was just this, this <laughs> what, I mean, I'm sure it sounds great to you yes, guys. Yes, yes. It sounds perfect for actually, you. That's actually, what you we do. We, we, we meet in this grand that's what I golden was. palace where we all like drink wine yeah, and <laughs> but I thought get along just fine. Right <laughs> yeah. I remember uh, one of the early episodes, I think I said to you, I'm like, so there isn't just this database of like, everything everybody knows that this gets put together and sorted neatly and then you can all just pull it out and go okay well that person knew this i'm studying yeah i'm studying this and this is what everybody ever has written about this uh, yeah no i really thought that's how it worked (laughs) and you smashed it apart like everything else i've ever (laughs) thought i knew about all most of this podcast has basically just been disappointment for for dan (laughs) (laughs) poor guy (laughs) it's true yeah it's true because every everything i've ever heard about the viking age has been 
<laughs> destroyed slowly by you or somebody else. I started out being polite about it, and then I just got more and more careless. <laughs> yeah. Um, so how much do you... Th this is a question, I guess, for, for everybody. Um, how accurate do you think we know? Well, how accurate Ooh. do you think we are when it comes to what we know about the Viking Age? Um, and I guess everyone's going to have a different opinion on it. Do you think we're close or do you think we're miles off? Because I know from, from our episodes, we know fucking nothing. Mm -hmm. Like that's pretty much the, the consensus I've got from. I mean, if you, if you want to be responsible, uh, in my opinion, at least, if you want to be responsible. This is, about oh, this is the other thing. Mm -hmm. All academics do this, or you do this a lot. It's you, you have like. Now you, the truth comes out. Yeah, you have, you have two, you have two modes. It's like, I'm going to say this in private. <laughs> But this, this is this is the my academic this this yes. is my academic reputation. So I'm going to yes. say this, yes. and I feel like that's probably what all academics are like. They have their private opinion and then the yeah. public one that they say to the peers. Yes, yes, yeah. That that that's that is the mode that you would need to have as an academic, mm -hmm. um, because otherwise somebody's going to write a really horrible review of your book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. So so what 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 you need to do is is uh if nothing else preface with like well I have an opinion on this and it might not, you know, fully jive with established scholarship <laughs> or uh you'll say well if I'm going to answer this responsibly I will say a b yeah, c yeah. d, right? Um so uh, you have but, your disclaimer yeah, I've seen you use that a lot already in the yes. last few days. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's kind of hard, though. I mean, uh, we're talking now about the Vikings and all the, the things we dug up. But, you know, imagine in like a thousand years, people dig stuff up about us and they find a Vogue magazine and they go, well, this is how they dressed. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. a bit of the same what we're doing now with the Vikings. We, we, we're finding stuff and... We can uh, actually only assume that they dressed like that uh, or used the, the certain tools. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's uh, well, a lot of guesswork in the end, of course, but you can still make an educated guess because, you know, if they find a Vogue magazine, sure, there are people who will wear, have worn that stuff. But did everyone wear that stuff? Probably not. Yeah, no, that's a that's a really good point. Do you want to uh, pass the mic over here, and maybe uh, we can get some input from, uh, um, uh, yeah. We're gonna swap there to we the, go. Yeah. So we'll, yeah. yeah, I get. Yeah, I guess how Sophie, how accurate do you think we've got it? Um, you can put the disclaimer in first, <laughs> and then and then nothing you say counts because you disclaimed <laughs> <laughs> it first. I think it's very difficult to say uh, how correctly we interpret the. Uh, but the in Viking. your personal opinion, how accurate? <laughs> do, you, do you think we're close, or do you think we're? This is exactly how that the it's complicated was. It's, it's complicated. <laughs> yes, yeah. it's very complicated. Um, because uh, I study texts, and mm -hmm. my. Um, my uh, Viking Age woman uh, lived in the ninth century. The texts are starting from the 11th, 13th century. So that's already like 200, 300 years in between. Yeah, that's a good. Uh, I, I, so, I think that's something people need to remember as well. When we, you know, you 
we see it, you, it comes out so quickly that it's like ninth to 10th mm-hmm. century and you just think oh it's only 100 years it's like you know think about how different it was 100 years from now yeah, exactly and how different it will be in 100 years mm-hmm. from now in the future um so are we close <laughs> i don't know <laughs> go on pick pick on that <laughs> do you think we're closer than not he really wants you to make a choice. Here. Yeah, <laughs> I see. Of course. I see. Of course. <laughs> you don't have to. Oh, oh. <laughs> you don't have to. <laughs> but you're not getting away with it, Frederick. I want one of you. <laughs> well, um, so to make it safe for me then, it's complicated. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, I, I think it's it's obvious that we don't know everything. It's I mean, we have very limited sources. Um, the the written sources we have are all I mean Christian, uh, even though I think it somehow is overemphasized by certain people. Uh, but there's still only a small fragment of the pre-Christian worldview that we have access to. And I think that's a very tragic part. Uh, it's, it would be nice to have like uh, a Nordic version of uh, Plato or Homer or something like that that uh, would have written large, large po- poems or philosophical treatises. And who knows, maybe in the future, you know, maybe in some Icelandic farm, you know, buried deep underground, we will find this. It's not likely. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm still uh, betting on in somewhere in Vatnajökull. Yeah, <laughs> deep, deep in the ice. Yeah, there, there will so, be I mean, a Bible. So, so, I mean, I think I think that's the the problem is that there is limited. So, I mean, and that's also one reason I think, uh, from my perspective, it's very interesting to see see the reception of the Viking Age because it continually changes because we have the ability to do that. I'm, I'm sure if we went into a time machine and we went, went back to the Iron Age, it wouldn't look like completely different from I mean, certain images because we have some understanding of how houses were built and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't be like there were flying saucers and uh, like some aerosophical fantasy world. But uh, it's still uh, there's still very, very little we know. And I think that we also have to be open that we will experience and know more and that will change our understanding of it which i think is also exciting exciting part of it so if you could find the the magic book that told you everything would you want to or do you like not do you like not knowing because i think i think part of that's the joy of of i think that's why so many people are interested in like the viking age and not mythology because we know so little that you can then especially for like the everyday person, you can apply it to your own life in your own way and you can interpret it and change it and mold it to fit you because there are so many gaps there. Uh, but as an academic, would you, if you could just find the book that just said everything? I mean, if there was such a magical book, some type of like the Bible, know, Viking Age Necronomicon. Uh, yeah. But uh, yes, of course you would read it, uh, but it would probably be very, I think the tragedy would you is- share it? Yeah, no. no. <laughs> but I mean, if you look at this, can, uh, I can't remember, there was there, those hidden runes, you know, there was this kind of mystical runes that uh, people tried to understand what they were saying. And they, but, but when they finally managed to sort of uh, de- decipher them, it was actually quite mundane stuff. Mm-hmm. Basically, kiss me and stuff like that. And to me, there's, there's, certain, there's a certain appeal to the mystery of it, without question. Mm-hmm. When we seek sort of finding the mystery, it's always very fascinating. Often when we find the answer, it's often rather, you know, it loses a sense of its magic. There is no question about it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, finding such a book when you actually, 
if you actually could see, okay, so they did the rituals in this way and they all, yes, somehow I think, you know, of course you would read it. Of course you would love to find such a book. But yeah, there is a certain enchantment that will probably they, go away. <laughs> and they do always say, don't meet your heroes because you might be. Yeah. You know, I met Matthias and. <laughs> take from that what you will <laughs> hey i posted a picture of your ass on on instagram yeah. on a burial zoom. mound you come on zoom. you have to zoom in there yeah yeah you can't really see it then yeah, uh, would you what do you think if you could find the book um it doesn't have to be oh. a book it could be a they might have video cameras Okay, okay, so ancient Viking it. video cameras uh, documenting every little aspect of, 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 of life back then. Um, yeah, no, I, 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 I would, uh, I would want that. Yeah, that would be awesome. Yeah. But and, we don't have that. Um, do we? <laughs> do we? No, not exactly. There are some really important. Give him the mic. Probably miss. Oh, oh I, l I love a surprise guest. Uh, surprise guest. Uh, so, oh, love a first surprise tell guest. us your name. <laughs> yeah. so, um, I'm Ragnar Ortenli. I work as an archaeologist in Westfall and Telemark. Uh, and basically, archaeologists searched landscape here for a decade. Mm -hmm. uh, we have 950 Viking Age burials. There are more halls at Borre than we have the farm. We don't have the farmhouses. We mm. can't see their lives. So, mm. so we get the dead, but we don't know the farms. We have one house that's Viking Age, which is badly preserved and half a part of one. We don't know anything about the actual Viking Age farm. Mm. But of course, most of these dead people are farmers. Mm. Mm -hmm. And then you have a certain elite. So we can see the elite better. We can't see the average person. He's not here. And the only thing we learn from our work is the more we find, the more complex the Viking Age gets. Mm -hmm. So you had a tale. Uh, Uttar had been in Skiringsal. You excavated Kaupang, all sold. Then suddenly in 2012, they got this small trading port nearby Goksta. Oops. There are two of these trading ports operating at the same time. Boy, how, how do we cope with this? So mm -hmm. we get new knowledge all the time with geophysics, with metal detecting finds. And the only thing we see is it's getting more complex, but we don't find the place they live at. Mm -hmm. mm, that's very fascinating. Yes. Um, okay, so a new question that came into my head. This is how, oh, oh, this, just, how this works for me. Just stuff over. just, no, no, it's so how how damaging do you think popular like TV shows like Vikings, Last Kingdom, The Northmen, these these things that that show Vikings always in this warrior role, um, very much the the like puffed up version, kind of the the you, you know like no it's, that's it's, that uh, and, that's and, the contrast between the the complex. Uh, Viking Age, right, and then the simplified Viking Age. That's, so, so to you know the the again the lay person that that just watches these shows and then assumes because they they don't necessarily listen to this podcast or listen to or do any deep dive at all. Mm -hmm. So they they don't understand that we know so little about this. They don't understand that 
in reality, we know fuck all about the, the Viking Age. And so to them, they, they watch these shows and I guess they just assume that it's all based on fact. It's all based on a lot of research and it's kind of going to be accurate. Um, yeah, I guess, do you think that that's damaging overall? Or do you think it's positive in that it brings people into the mm. into it? Yeah, that's a very good question. That's, that just popped up in my head. It's, Didn't it's even pre-plan a, that one. <laughs> <laughs> it could be. I mean, that that was one of my first steps was TV shows and, and that kind of thing. And like, oh, I'm interested in this. And then met this guy. I was like, he's like, no, fuck them shows. Everything's wrong in them. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, that, yeah, this is the double-edged sword, right? Because, you know, on the one hand, uh, these types of shows, they, uh, they, they, they create interest. They, um, you know, they inspire people in many different ways to, you know, do many different things. They inspire more of such shows right so 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 that is part of keeping a modern quote-unquote viking culture alive and on the other hand they you know somebody watches vikings and then go out there and is like hey i'm gonna get a a a big beard and and shaved sides and then i'm gonna put a little hairpin and um (laughs) (laughs) oh my my soul (laughs) i guess i I deserve that no it's a cool hairdo dude um but but you know that's that's like uh this is that's something that's a sad boy gift now that that's something that 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 happens and you know one of the things that comes out of that is a is a whole look right so generating (laughs) all right you've said it now (laughs) generating contemporary culture too right and then you know uh those people uh, some of those people they then become interested in the actual facts and uh, of of uh, whatever facts we can even know about the viking age this is your chance trying to say something nice about me trying to chase down that that deeper knowledge and become smarter and smarter and after 126 episodes you can do you it know, compliment me. There. <laughs> 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 so i mean that's 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 the beauty of it as well it, it, i i don't think but i imagine it's it's a rare occasion that someone does what I don't. I don't think so. I, I think this is an example. I, I think Midgard's Blood is an example of. It's not a rare occasion. I think the the average uh, person who has some kind of popular interest in Vikings, mm-hmm. um, or interest generated from popular stuff mm-hmm. in Vikings, um, probably also does seek out information as best as they can in so many different ways. So I think ultimately whatever is being created in popular culture, Mm -hmm. I think ultimately it's for, for the better rather than being, you know, uh, this being a a dead thing that, that has ceased to exist in our minds at all. You've deleted Facebook. So you don't see the <laughs> shit storm that still goes on on Facebook, and so I think it's I think it's very rare that somebody watches the shows and then takes the the dive and really wants to learn because we still put episodes out where we've spoken to legitimate like prof- like 
world leading scholars in their field and we'll put it out and then someone on Facebook will go, no, he's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and like, we, that happens all the time. We get comments like, ha, that's not how it was. It's like, okay. Like, did you listen to the episode? No. I was like, well, <laughs> like I, I, the, the one for people to, to learn more, I think is terrifying because like when, when I took a journey, this journey, I guess, I read a bunch of sagas on online and all the stories and, and thought we knew everything and knew what Valhalla was and Asgard knew all this stuff from what I read very easily kind of by Googling. And then the more I spoke with you, you're like, well, that's wrong. That's wrong. And that people get upset by that. A lot of people maybe don't want to accept that everything they've read, even if it's going back to like what we said about the academics you guys do for 10 years, but some people get upset if they do for 10 days. They've done 10 days reading and they think they know everything about Vikings and they go, get really upset if you go, well, that's wrong. And then they get into these massive arguments about it. So I think it's, it's tough for people sometimes to be told it's wrong and they don't want to accept that. I think, I think the problem is more Facebook than people. Probably. <laughs> no, honestly. But I do <laughs> like the, getting you know, the, the, what, um, the media is a message here, right? So I, I, I think what happens with, uh, uh, with Facebook is, is just a, you know, a very problematic social situation on, on social media. And let's, let's and get Facebook now. We've tr- <laughs> trash scholars. Let's, let's go for, let's go for Facebook now. Yeah. Yeah. No, all of a sudden you can't find our stuff on, on <laughs> yeah. social media any longer. <laughs> Probably. Meta banned us. <laughs> Um, we are quickly running out of time uh, with the, the panel the talk. So, um, Daniel, I wanted to ask you if there's a single uh, last question you would like to fire off to any of the uh, panelists that we have here with us. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think we I think we covered it quite well. Yeah. Um, I guess I want to ask whether like. Because we've got the scholars sat on one side. I don't know if we did this on purpose. And then like the, the more like experimental stuff over here. Do you guys have anything that you'd like to ask or any beefs? If you want to, <laughs> if anyone said anything maybe you didn't agree with or. But yeah. Oh, here we go. Yeah. No, uh, as scholars, of course, uh, archaeologists. Um, for me, uh, sorry, <laughs> we're doing one side to the other, right? <laughs> um, for, for me as a storyteller, what, what uh, would be interesting for you? What would you see, uh, would like to see back in the, the stories, the myths? Ooh, I like that one. Well, as, a, as an archaeologist, I'll, I'll go straight for that. Uh, straight for that one. I mean, um, uh, <clears throat> this kind of goes back a little bit to the previous question and the popular culture stuff. One of the things that irritates the hell out of me, uh, particularly with the popular culture, and what I would like to see back in stories is an end to the hypermasculinity that's uh, that's grown up through uh, centuries of of Christian dominated study of, you know, of Viking Age stories. That's you know where you very much get a sense of you know kind of other other gender roles than than big manly men being edited out, 
you know, from a practical point of view in the archaeology myself, my, you know, my specialism in, in metalworking, you know, I'm very much on the lookout for and in tune with other academics working in non-ferrous metalworking. We're looking out for signs of women particularly being involved in metalworking. That seems to be uh, a strong probability in places where metalworking is happening in domestic contexts, you know, so that understanding of society and understanding that, you know, that things in the Viking Age probably weren't as they then were two, three hundred years later is the kind of understanding I'd, I'd like to see a bit more. And if, you know, if the storytelling can reflect the sort of the ways that, you know, uh, that kind of our, mo- our modern culture is, is kind of viewing, you know, it, viewing the Viking Age society and losing some of the prejudices that we've developed in the last thousand years, that would be great. Mm-hmm. I like I like that. Seems like you, yeah. I need to come and listen to one of my stories. <laughs> <laughs> and for you? Oh, piggyback on the back of that. Also, how important do you think it is to, on the flip side of that, not let modern perception kind of go back and kind of may, like influence what we what we do know, and kind of people want to put things in that maybe aren't there. Well, that is difficult because our perception is always going to be our modern perception. But what we have to accept is that the perception passed down to us by previous generations mm-hmm. of study it was also a modern perception. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, reflexively eliminating, you know, sort of uh, prejudices and biases from there is a hell of a job to do. But, you know, it's, it's worth doing. It is. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Pass on the mic. Uh, we want to hear more opinions on this topic. Also, as you look at this series, it's like it's so dark and colorless. Uh, we we know from the Usabag, we know from the Goks that bright colors, but of course they evaporated when they excavated it. But to, to kind of bring the colors and the glam. And it, oh, they, yeah. they were not afraid of uh, afraid of that. Yeah, we we uh, have already visited mullet Vikings, and yeah. I'd love to see some glam rock Vikings yeah. as oh, well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so bringing the colors back is good. And you talked a bit about the re- kind of when you build the Viking ships, you rebuild them. So when they went it one more further, and they also instead of buying a sail, made the sail you realized how much textile work that mm-hmm. the, the, the sail is probably worth more than the ship. Yeah. So mm-hmm. you kind of value the textiles much more and the, the kind of the small, every spindle whirl, everything that you need, you need 1.3 kilometers of rope. You need a big sail. You need, so the, the complexity in that. And also it's only done because somebody actually bothered to actually make one. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And that's, that gives us a huge lesson. And of course, then br- at least bring the colors back. Yeah, yeah. W- what we know about them. Yeah. That's really interesting because I think people focus on the glamorous stuff like the axes, the swords, the shields, and and things like that, and forget about a sail and how expensive that would be and how important it is. But it's not cool. <laughs> it's, that people just lose, that, I guess, and forget. They want to know all about yeah like i said the fighting things and the things that they think are cool so. Thank you. That's very helpful. Mm-hmm. yeah so um, so 
Is it still on? Okay. Yes. Well, yeah. I mean, I think glam Vikings would be great as well. Mm-hmm. I think I really would like to see it. I mean, sometimes it can be a little bit, even though I, mean, I can kind of like that darker aesthetic as well, but um, it, it can it can be very, very boring. And I think the big problem with the kind of reception of the Viking Age is that it becomes so repetitive. Mm-hmm. Uh, like all of the Vikings, Northmen, all of them, it's, they all look the same. And it's like after a while you've seen that, you've seen the kind of, uh, hypermasculinity and a kind of a masculine image for both men and women at the contemporary reception of it. But it becomes, I think the big problem with the reception and particularly modern storytelling is to avoid being repetitive because it can become extremely boring. I mean, disregarding all other aspects of it just becomes mindlessly boring. Mm-hmm. So do something more fun and something else. Everything doesn't have to be like, the end of the world stuff and killing even, even though it's a fun story but yeah, um, yeah, yeah so that would be, probably yeah. played out too much at this point. yeah it's it yeah. been done a couple of times it's particularly <laughs> like the uh yeah the whole um, vikings didn't care about anything else but just killing people and going on ship raids it's fun to a degree but after you've seen it in tv series after tv series after tv series and you have bands basically playing the same kind of story that's all about you know the same yeah. repetitive stuff so yeah, yeah more and more nuance and more uh, more fun basically yeah so more viking love stories love, yeah love rom-com v- v- viking <laughs> viking's yeah. the rom-com yeah, yeah. yeah I, w- I wouldn't see it myself but it would be interesting to see yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> i did have one more question i forgot <laughs> oh okay, okay. Um, do you, you don't want to hear from some people I think I want more more women, but not the uh, the Valkyries or the Shield Maidens, but just the women because they were badass women, um, and also the old Norse sagas. They were more about storytelling, how you told a story, than what was fact or fiction. Um, so I think that's maybe also something to keep in mind that it's all about the storytelling and how you bring it than what you tell so yeah okay uh yeah my last question um how important do you think the, the christian sources are to the modern reception i know you mentioned it briefly earlier frederick um because i think they get shut down very quickly in modern days is this Certainly, again, I don't know, I can't speak for like the academic side of things, but against like the everyday person, they hear the word Christian and kind of just go, fuck that, that must be wrong. Ignore all of that. Um, but then, you know, with, with Snorri, like we get a lot from that and it is very Christianized, but there are things that we can take from it and learn from it. Um, so yeah, what's, what's your opinion on that, Matthias? Well, um, it, you know, it's, 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 it's an interesting dichotomy between this this notion of a hegemonic paganism and a hegemonic Christianity in this material. Um, honestly, I don't think you can break it up that way. Uh, I agree with you, Frederick, that uh, uh, to an extent, the 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 problematic aspect of 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 the Christian content of some of these sources is played up too much. Um, on the other hand, uh, what we also should keep in mind is that uh, 
Christianity at the time, the Christianity that existed in, in these communities that were writing these stories is an entirely different kind of Christianity than any of us are familiar with today. Yeah. Um, we should keep in mind that the type of Christianity that was generated in uh, Scandinavia, but not just Scandinavia, the rest of Europe too, in, in many ways, um, incorporated a bunch of elements that were, we would classify as pre-Christian too, right? We should also keep in mind that the average person living on their farm somewhere in 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 some kind of scandinavian community or i don't know even an italian community and in the french community for that matter or polish or wherever we are uh, in europe their their world and spirituality revolves around the location they live in which okay. means that there is to a, a greater extent the chance of various kinds of survivals in this time period that we call the medieval period. And then they bring out the pitchforks and the, the torches and start burning witches. And that's where you get a, a solid Christian cleansing. Um, a, it was like the, the, the burning age in the, um, that, that begins in, in the late 1400s and escalates through the 1500s and really culminates in the 1600s. That is a massive regulation project in Europe where, um, what we're seeing in, uh, it depends on the communities that we're, uh, we're talking about too. Like, uh, the, the witch hunt in Europe is, a different thing in Belgium compared to um, different communities in Germany or Denmark or Sweden or Finland and so on. And we see we see uh, different types of peoples being targeted for different reasons and so on. Uh, except, of course, it always comes down to an accusation of having committed some kind of offense to Christianity. What res uh, comes as a result from that is homogenization of society is in Europe uh, to a much greater extent and also streamlining of societies in Europe that follows the centralized power and what they want. So what that means then is that when we're looking at a text that was written in medieval Iceland in the 1200s before this process had really gotten started, um, well, we, we can theorize at least that there are more uh survivals from from a pre-christian context than we actually um maybe even understand mm -hmm. um and that i'm not talking about like oh cool descriptions of rituals or there's an elf over here or something like that it could be something that you would completely miss essentially because you don't have the capacity, neither as a scholar or, or, or a, a layperson, you don't have the capacity to actually see it, mm -hmm. right? So that's something to keep in mind, that, that we, we could be blind to survivals that, that, that are just, you know, um, slip under the radar mm -hmm. because we're, we're looking for, for all the fancy stuff, as, as you were pointing out mm -hmm. before, with the swords and the axes and all that stuff. Yeah, I think my biggest takeaway from, from that, was the when you said um, the Christianity of, of of then is not the same Christianity of now, and I think that so many people just 
look at their dislike of Christianity in modern times and then want to just dismiss everything and what we might learn in the past. And you, you see it over and over and over again, like I say, like on Facebook groups or whatever, as soon as anybody mentions anything Christian, it's like it's almost like the the shutdown to anybody's source of knowledge. It's like, oh, that's Christian. And they mm. kind of just shit on it straight away. Whereas there are things we can learn from it. And like I say, it's not the Christianity of today. It's it's what would today would, would probably consider as been pagan or has got closer to it. Yeah, I mean that that that's at least a um, a possibility that, that that could be the case. Yeah, let's see what you did there. <laughs> Should we? Yeah, let's wrap this up. Yeah, let's fun. wrap this up. Thank you so much to our panelists. Thank you very thank much you for joining us. Um, thank you for the surprise guest as well. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. First ever live recording. Yeah, first ever live recording. Thank you to the audience as well mm -hmm. who stuck this out. Um, head with us yeah. <laughs> yeah thank you very much awesome perfect alright let's go get beer let's go get beer yeah <laughs> <Beer. laughs>